Hello, welcome to a new episode of Breaking and Entering, the podcast looking for fund managers with interesting careers behind them. I'm Daniel Ruiz, investment reporter for Citywide Selector in London, and our guest today is Chris Ford, head of growth equities at Salam Investments UK. He joined the South African company at the start of 2021 from Smith & Williamson, where he was a partner for five years. Before that, he was co-lead of the global equities team at Pictay for eight years. However, and there is always a plot twist here because otherwise this wouldn't be breaking and entering, finance was not the first option for Chris. He studied bachelor's and master's degrees in music. Chris, welcome to Breaking and Entering. Hi, nice to be here. Just as finance, music, and especially music in the academical world, has a lot to do with maths and numbers. Uh, accuracy is key when scoring, and performance is just as essential when playing. Just as musicians do, many fund managers also seek to find their own style. But we'll get to that in a minute. First things first, Chris, what's your main instrument? <laughs> well, I was a, I'm a violinist by, by, by training. I play the viola and the, and the piano and various other things badly. But yeah, violin is really my, my first instrument. So, okay, in which case, only one option from classic ones. Ah, I'm going to have a hard time pronouncing all of this. Menuhin, Paganini, Sarasate or Vivaldi? Oh, I'd go Menuhin. He was a great man and a really good teacher. And you know, the way he taught people and the people he's left behind are, are quite inspirational, to be honest. And then contemporaries, Joshua Bell, Julia Fisher, Nicola Benedetti, or Hilary Hahn. Oh, wow. Well, Hilary Hahn is a great hero of mine. She's a fabulous, fabulous um, uh, uh, violinist. And um, there's an extraordinary video of her, thank heavens for YouTube, uh, playing the 24th Caprice by, uh, by uh, Paganini whilst um, hula hooping at the same time, which is just the most extraordinary party trick. <laughs> most violinists well, can't play the caprices without the hula hoop. The hula hoop really is just taking it too far. <laughs> yeah. um, do you still play, Chris? I do, yeah. I, I play... I, I have a young family now, and so I, I play the piano as much as I play the violin these days, and I try to play some Bach every day and maybe a bit of Mozart as well. It's a very good way of washing the brain after a, a, a long day of having to think hard about um, earnings season in particular. Just as anyone, just play a bit of a Pilmonset every now and then. <laughs> Um, my wife's also a musician, my parents are musicians, my sister is a musician, so you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, music making that goes on at home when, when people get together and, uh, and, and so on. My wife's a, a choral singer, so when we're, we live up in uh, just near Cambridge, so obviously we're right in the epicentre of some of the best choral um, uh, music making that goes on anywhere in the world. So there's, there's a lot of music in the house and a lot of music in the family, and uh, to be honest, a lot of my time is now spent uh, trying to coax my children into doing their daily practice, which is um, <laughs> both, both fascinating, rewarding, and at times excruciating. <laughs> Are you more of a rock and roll pop gig or a concert person? I'm definitely more of a concert person. I like going to, going to hear music to listen to it. If I'm in an environment with music, I want to be able to hear it. And, you know, there's a... There's an interesting discipline in not just Western musical traditions, but also in some Asian musical traditions of music beginning and ending with silence. And there's something really interesting about that, that it occupies its own space. And, um, and I, I, it's, a, it's a very good mental discipline, but you know, it allows you to immerse yourself in the complexities and nuances of pieces that you might think that you know quite well and hear things afresh and, and hear detail that you might have missed previously. I'm going to throw you a curveball here. What would be an equivalent of the need for silence 
in music, but in asset management? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Um, I, you know, because we're, we're all so caught up every day in just extraordinary amounts of data noise. And so one of the one of the important disciplines, I think, is being able to understand what's signal and what's noise and being able to do that requires, you know, your ability to actually in some way abstract yourself from from the, 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 the racket around you to in order to try to figure out what it is you really should be focusing on. And so allowing yourself time in the research process to do that, that I think is absolutely is absolutely critical. If you can't do that, then you're destined to blow with the wind in one direction or another. And it's the same as, you know, allowing yourself space on either side of a uh, 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 Bach cantata to be able to focus on the music in question rather than kind of just thinking that it's part of the melange of, uh, of, uh, of, of the noise of the day. You said music's in the family first. What do they play? Do you get to play together? And why violin? <laughs> well, my, so my, my, my family, in their broadest extent, play almost everything. My sister almost single-handedly plays everything. She plays, you know, violin and piano and uh, she sings. She plays the viola and all kinds of other things as well. My, my, but most of my, my family are keyboard players of one sort or another. My father's actually a harpsichordist as well as a, 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 um, a pianist. Um, and uh, my grandfather was a, was, a, was a singer. So, yeah, it all goes, goes back quite a long way. And I think that tend, it often tends to be the case that you find, you know, if there's um, you know, music in the family that everybody ends up being, being sucked into it. And that's as true of um, folk traditions as it is of, um, of classical music traditions, for example. You, know, you find, you know, that, that it's the thing that people do to recreate, to associate with one another. Um, it becomes part of, the, part of the family culture. And it's something which, of course, goes across... Um, geographic cultures. It's something which you find in, in India. It's something which you find in the Asian um, uh, world. It's something which you find in, um, in North America as much as, as Western, Western Europe. And it's a, it's, a, it's a great thing. And I know sometimes children are just given an instrument and they just learn it by chance. But did you choose violin? Yeah, I, 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 I had heard a violin played. And my mother always tells, tells a story of how I'd heard this violin played. And uh, we had an old violin at home and she, she got it out when I was aged kind of I must have been five or six, and uh, she scraped a few kind of notes on it, and I pointed out and said, "I want to play that," and that was that was the rest. That rest was the rest was history. I condemned my my parents to five years of misery as I <laughs> scraped my way through the early years of learning to play the violin, which is you know it's, as I now understand, it's pretty much the most difficult instrument that you could you could hope to try and try and learn. Well, as we've said you have bachelor's degrees in in, in music with first class honors from the University of Nottingham. How much of it? was pure talent given again that it comes from it is in the family and how much of it was pure effort there's a lot of effort goes into being competent at music you know all the hours practicing and so on and, and what's interesting is that i think with my cohort at university you could have pretty much lined us up against the wall on on day one and 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 said you know you're going to get a two one you're going to get a first you're going to get a two two because the, the subject is so huge that if you haven't made huge strides in your knowledge by the time you get to university age 18, three years just simply isn't enough time to be able to catch up. There's just so much to, in, to engage with. So, you know, it was, a, it was an easy choice for me to go to Nottingham because it was, a, um, it was at the time the best um, university music department at the, in, in the UK, one of the best in the world. It had an amazing, um, amazing staff. And it was a small, um, a small university, that all being, albeit a, a red brick. I've always got one question for people that have studied music and that, let's just say say it this way, they're not self-taught. But I think there's a lot of self-teaching, even when you are studying music at university, for example. But um, do you think like academic musicians also have a, like a self-taught side to them? 
just a way autodidacts also study music in their own way. I think, I mean, music is an incredibly broad field of study. And, um, you know, you can think of it at one end of the spectrum as being almost like linguistics. You can think about it in terms of acoustics and therefore being a very kind of almost a natural science. You can think of it in terms of uh, pure artistic endeavour and creation, almost as you would do literature or, um, or, fine, or fine art. Um, and that's before, of course, we, we think about actually just the raw, um, the, the, the prosaic stuff, if you like, of, pl- of playing an instrument. Um, so I think it slightly depends on which, which, which direction you tend to take. I, I was fortunate enough to have an amazing violin teacher who was a guy called Emmanuel Herbitz, who was uh, one of a you know, great um, generation of, uh, of very eminent Jewish violinists who had come to the UK in the middle of the 20th century. And um, Manny Herbitz always used to, to say to me, you, you need to find a way to overcome this particular, um, this particular problem that, that was in, in view. And so he was very much of the view that, you know, you, you ended up teaching yourself, that your, the role of your teacher is to provide, you know, suggestions as to how you might go about that and routes in and techniques that might help you. But ultimately, you have to find ways to overcome these uh, problems that stand in front of you um, in your own way and using the, um, you know, the, the, the benefits, the edges, if you like, that you have that might set you apart from, from others. And I think that mental model for how you go about practicing your instrument, whatever it might be, and finding your own solutions to the questions that are being posed of you is very similar to the questions that are posed of us as, by, as investors by the market on a daily basis. You know, how do you find a way to invest in the way that you've explained to your clients that you will and to realise their aspirations for the return that they require um, in, the, in the product that you're running? It's something which I've always found is very, very important for um, for, for teaching uh, younger people. Mm-hmm. Just after getting his degree uh, for a year, Chris was an assistant editor for the New Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians, which is linked to the Oxford University Press. Chris, I'm assuming you didn't pursue a career as a performer. And after hearing you speak, I get that you were more interested in the theoretical side of music. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I mean, I did a lot of performing as well. And I played, you know, with professional um, orchestras. Uh, I specialised in early music. So I, I played with a number of um, early music um, orchestras, you know, specialising in Bach and Handel and Vivaldi and that kind of thing. So I did a lot of that, but I never really wanted to be a full-time uh, performing musician. It was always something that I, I was fascinated by, but I didn't really want the lifestyle, to be honest. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to do. It's a great thing to do when you're 20, 21, 22, 23, and it's a terrible thing, thing still to be doing when you're 50, when you've got commitments and families and, and all the rest of it. It's very, very hard. Uh, it's not well paid. It's a, it's a, it's a real labour of love, and I, I admire anybody greatly who will commit themselves to that. It's, it's, a, it's a huge thing. Um, but no, I was much more, I was at least as interested in the theoretical um, side of, um, of, of musicology. And, and the Grove, um, uh, my time at Grove was interesting. Grove was a, or is a project that um, was um, really published only once every 20 years. And I was headhunted um, out of university um, to go and work for Grove. Um, and it's the kind of thing that you don't say no to, because if you say no, you don't get another opportunity. Um, and so we had a I had a great opportunity to go and work at Grove and for that kind of two-year period while Grove is being produced and edited, um, it's, uh, it's an extraordinary place to be because you're absolutely at the epicentre of musicological research everywhere around the world. And so my job there was to work in the um, Baroque area of Grove, so kind of 1600 through 1750, um, liaising with some of the, the best musicologists around the world who were writing the relevant um, the bits and pieces on Bach and Pandel and, and, and so on. 
Um, and it was a it was a it was a fascinating place to be. It gave me a, a real window into the musicological world and great links, and I made some great friends there. What it also first I didn't expect this. What it what it taught me was how um, how important business culture is and how important business models are in that context, because it turns out that publishing is a terrible business model, and often publishing houses are terrible cultures. And um, you know, whilst you know Grove was a slight little microcosm microculture within the broader um, publishing house that, that 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 owned it, it was a very interesting um, window into the corporate world. And I very quickly became kind of fascinated by by how. Um, functional and dysfunctional um, different elements of corporate culture can be at one point in time and that has gone on to become a very significant part of how we think about companies and how we go about making investments in them. I mean music is a vast area to cover it is a whole universe dating back to the earliest times of humankind really I mean working for a music dictionary must be as entertaining as difficult I guess I mean we're talking about finding the right definitions in a world that is quite subjective in a way. What was the definition setting process? It was very difficult. And, you know, luckily as a, as a, as a junior, I was relatively <laughs> lacking in responsibility for this. I think that was all to the, all to the best interests of, of, of Grove's um, subsequent readership. Um, but it was very difficult. And, you know, I remember, I mean, there were various complexities that confronted us at various points. I remember that halfway through the publication process for this dictionary, um, Prince, um, the pop musician um, decided that he wasn't going to be known as Prince anymore, but was going to be known as Symbol. And how on earth do you alphabetize that? You know, so I remember there was a huge kind of conversation that went on in the Grove office as to how on earth we were going. You know, where are we going to put Prince first? Were we going to put him last? Are we going to just how are we going to do this? It was you know, so this, this just went on and on and on as you can imagine. And then of course, you know, how do you? Um, how do you transcribe um, uh, names from languages other than English, or more particularly from alphabets other than the other than the Roman alphabet into English? And that sounds remote, but you know, how do you how do you alphabetize Tchaikovsky, for example? Does it begin with a T? Does it become with a C? You know, it, so it, all this kind of stuff and categorization and, and so on, and, they, and and all of this in its most abstract sense is 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 data organization. And so um, something which I've always been interested in is, is, is data organization. And you can think almost of as music as being a particular sort of data, data organization. You know, as a composer, you're organizing sounds in a particular way and then trying to communicate that in such a way that it can be reproduced by, by subsequent musicians. And so that process of, um, you know, writing that down and communicating um, is, 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 a, is a data organization task in, it, in, it, in itself. And that's a, a frame of reference which I found myself very regularly building upon and utilizing in my more recent work running the artificial intelligence fund at um at smith and williamson where of course data organization and uh, and the manipulation of data is um, at the heart of what it is we're looking to invest in mm -hmm. we'll get to ai in a in a minute but in, in 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 the grove music online website one can look for subjects by instrument era region and topic among others of these last ones there are 22 different ones which <laughs> Before going deeper in this, which one was the more interesting for you now? And now that the time has passed, which one is it now? Sorry, of, of the categorizations? Of the topics. Of the topics. I mean, I think I'm, I'm always fascinated by, I'm fascinated by musical form and I'm fascinated by musical language and I'm fascinated by how that evolves over time. Um, and one of my postgraduate um, uh, research projects was looking at musical language and how it's inflected by geopolitics. 
So, for example, in the 18th century, at a point in time where there was no such thing as recorded music, if you wanted to hear French music, you either had to go to France or you had to bring French music to you. And if France and England, as they often were in the 18th century, were at war, then you had no exposure to French music. And so how does that then change the musical lingua franca in London when, music, when London had no exposure to, to, French, to French music? Does music in England then become more like German music or more like Italian music because it isn't any longer able to be exposed itself to French music? And it's interesting that, you know, as, far, as, as recently as the, as the current time, you know, French music is seen as being slightly other to um, other musical languages, even in pop culture. French pop culture, popular music is seen as, you know, a very distinct subgenre of, 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 of popular culture. Um, and, you know, it, it, that's in no small part, in, in, in my view, as a result of its, um, of, its, of its cultural history and its geopolitical history. So thinking about those kind of things. So that's the kind of thing that I would be, I've, I, was, I was fascinated by working at Grove, you know, tracing these uh, genealogies, if you like, you know, and, and, tra- and musical trade routes back through, through time to see how, how, how they evolved and to try and correlate some of that with um, the changes in musical language over the years. Just going back to the topics, some have truly interesting names. Enlighten us, Chris. What is organology what is echo criticism and echo musicology <laughs> so organology is an easy one organology is just the study of instruments so back in the day when the when 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 an organ was just the instrument that you had in the church you know that's that, that's where that that's where that comes from um so it could be the study of violins or flutes or anything else um eco musicology is basically the study of musicology and its natural of music and its natural surroundings so it's trying to understand how the environment um uh, influences music and how music influences the environment and eco-criticism is effectively writing about that um, and that could be you know, anything from on the one hand uh, composers looking to write music which depicts a natural scene so it might be something like Smetana's Voltava um, or Fingal's Cave by, by Mendelssohn in the early part of the 19th century both of those you know, are tone poems looking to depict a particular kind of um, scene um, it could equally be um, how a particular performance given in a cathedral is perceived differently by its audience than, a, than, a, than, a, than a, a, a performance of the same music given by the same people, but maybe done in the back room of a public of a pub or a club. Um, you know how all those how those kinds of things impact, and then also just you know how the how music has been co-opted politically as a means by which um, protest, uh, particularly in an eco ecological sense has been co-opted by uh, protest movements to uh, uh, serve their own ends. So it's always easier than it sounds. But it's always, it's always, it's a, it's a long word for something which is actually remarkably straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> so um, straight after his stint as an assistant editor, you became an investment manager at Schroeder. After all, there's a lot of maths involved in music, as we said before. Was that what drew you to finance? Um, it was partly that I could do it. Um, certainly, I felt like I had the raw skills to be able to do it, and the maths, you know, perspective is is, is part of that. Um, it's partly that I like I, I wanted a new challenge. I wanted some means by which I could kind of begin to think about how these mental models that I was beginning to build, you know, through my time at university, through um, my my time at Grove, how you know, find find a way that those mental mod- models could be developed and deployed in a broader context and. Um, I was very fortunate that at the time that I, I joined the city in the late 1990s, the city at that point was still taking a very, very broad view as to the kind of skills that they, they, they valued in graduates. Uh, you know, they, were, they were far more interested in hiring people who they thought were smart and could think critically well. If they thought that you could do that, then they were prepared to invest in you to help you develop the skills that would enable you to then put that, that critical competency to work in the, in the context of investment. And then after Schroeder, a couple of years there, you joined Aegon, again, as an investment manager. However, during that time, you go back to uni, 
to do a Masters of Music in the University of Glasgow. Where was that? Did you miss music somehow? Did you feel like you needed to go back for some reason? I felt like there was a bit of unfinished business. You know, I'd, I'd worked at Grove rather than done a Masters straight out after, after university. And so I wanted to just go and tick that box, if you like. And um, there was somebody at, at Glasgow who I wanted to study with. So um, it was an obvious um, thing to do whilst I was living in Edinburgh to, um, you know, apprentice myself just up the road in Glasgow to, to somebody who was, you know, very well thought of and who I, I really enjoyed working with from a musicological perspective. And so, but I did find myself for a brief period of time, you know, a fairly extraordinary period of time, you know, completing... Uh, uh, multiple degrees and also working on the US desk at uh, at Aegon. So it was a um, it was a fairly full on um, period. There wasn't an awful lot of spare spare time to be had at that at that point. And then it was eight years at Pictet, and then um, you were also a partner at Smith and Williamson. That's for five, I believe. Uh, and then you've just joined um, Sanlam as head of growth equities. What's your main job there? So my main job is is managing money. Um, I'm I'm the head of head of growth equities there. Um, but you know, to be honest, we, we've always taken the I've always taken the view that small teams are a a blessing, um, particularly small teams of um, experienced people who know what they're doing and who, frankly, kind of rub along pretty well together without having to need a huge amount of management. So I'm very fortunate to have a great team of four working with me, um, and I'm, I'm actually the young guy um, of, uh, amongst the, you know, the there are four of us. There's one one graduate, and then the other two guys are, are, are have much more experience than I do. It's a very simple job, actually. Our industry has spent has spent a long time uh, <laughs> trying to make things needlessly difficult and complex for itself, whereas actually, you know, the complexity lies in the the decision making process and the analysis that we need to make of the companies of the investment opportunities in front of us and the companies that we're looking to invest with. Mm-hmm. And growth equities have always been about, you know, catching the wave sooner than the rest. What's the magic formula? Uh, or is it just as when studying music, is it about accuracy and good performance following a, a period of research? Uh, what, how, does, how does it work for you guys? I think it is to an extent catching the wave early, but it's also understanding how big the wave is and how long it's going to it's going to flow for. So, you know, it, you, one could perceive for themselves to have, have, be, have missed that kind of early early signal. But actually, only find out find out ten years later that if only one had still jumped on the wave at that point, one could have ridden it for another another eight years, ten years. I, th- I think it is multifaceted, and of course, it, it's different depending on on the context. One of the reasons that we run an artificial intelligence fund is because we regard it as being one of the big waves which um, will um, will will flow for at least a couple more decades as we see artificially intelligent platforms. Um, proliferate right the way across the the economy, and you know when we launched our fund in 2017, um, we we had to do quite a lot of evangelising at that point in time when when AI was you know a bit quite out there and people didn't really necessarily think that it was a real thing and it wasn't going to impact their lives. And I think now you know four, five years later, and with um, COVID um, having been a lived experience for all of us, we can now all see the extent to which you know, AI platforms in a number of different ways have had really tangible influences on our lives over the course of the last couple of years. And uh, it's only now um, going to going to, going to going to change. So it's going to change our lives in a material, in really material ways. So there's an awful long, long way to go. And so when we think about thematic investing, we're trying to find those, um, those very long lived um, transitions, if you like, that can be multi-decade in length that allow us to you know, of course, then make arbitrations between companies that um, are emblematic of that theme, um, but 
understanding that we will get things wrong that's that's the nature of the business you know you get things wrong every now and again but hopefully by investing within the theme you have that gale of a tailwind blowing at your back um uh in the context of everything that you're looking at so when you get things wrong hopefully they don't go as wrong as, as they might have done otherwise and if when you get things right they go an awful lot better in terms of company picking what's what's the investment process there what's the thinking process so the investment process is, you know, for the AI fund is, is quite straightforward. It's quite d- different to, to many others. We use our own artificially intelligent tools to help us to define those companies around the world that um, are emblematic of, um, uh, uh, the, of an engagement with artificially intelligent systems in a meaningful way. And that creates a subset of the overall um, uh, equity universe that forms our, our addressable universe for the, for the fund in question. Um, and within that, we then look to understand quite how a company is engaged with AI in terms of, you know, did it only just operate in a very small portion of the artificially intelligent world? Um, maybe it would be a sensor company, for argument's sake, making something which just collects data. Or perhaps it's some, something like an, alpha, an alphabet, for example, that you know, would operate right the way across the artificially intelligent world. And so you can build, build this sense of breadth or narrowness of exposure to the theme. Um, uh, and then we look to understand whether a company's engagement with AI is actually the determining factor in its ability to develop its economic value addition. Um, you know, more pithily, what we want to know is if a company's artificially intelligent systems somehow evaporate in a puff of smoke, you know, what is it that that company can then do the subsequent, uh, a subsequent morning? So if you think about a, a company like Alphabet, for example, if you were to remove their artificially intelligent platforms, you know, what could they do tomorrow? Well, there'd be no smart search, there would be no... Um, ability to differentiate me from being a significantly different consumer perhaps from you Daniel and then as a result of that the ability to service different advertising would be removed because there would be no context contextual framework for that to happen and that of course would impact the vast majority of, of Alphabet's revenues at the moment you couldn't develop automated driving platforms you couldn't do natural language generation like called natural language processing so all that voice activated stuff would go so you can fairly quickly see you can peel away the layers of the onion and there's really very little left and so we would assert with a very high level of confidence that um, Alphabet is a company whose future is almost entirely dependent on the AI upon which it stands. And that's the kind of, you know, there'll be other examples of companies where that's not true. They might be engaged with AI, but it doesn't really matter. <clears throat> and what effectively we're looking for are companies that are very broadly exposed to AI, very purely exposed to AI with you know, high levels of liquidity where possible um, so that we can take large positions. And we use those three um, uh, characteristics to define our maximal position size because we don't really have a benchmark, uh, an index for this fund, and we don't really have a direct peer group. So it's quite a different way of, um, uh, of, of, ma- of managing a, an investment process, but it's one that's been you know, pretty successful so far. And aside from Alphabet or within AI, what, what is, um, what's driving growth? at the moment well very yeah. sim- very simply in the ai world what's driving growth is the um desire for, on the part of corporate uh, buyers to engage with ai platforms at an ever, ever faster rate and the reason that's happening is that it, in the course of the last five years it's become increasingly and irrefutably apparent to um in large parts of the economy that um, artificially intelligent systems have a very very relevant role to play um, in um, managing well within those parts of the economy to the extent that in some parts of the um, economy now uh, we've almost pivoted completely from a world in which there was no artificially intelligent system present to a world in which almost 100% of the activity now is is, is, um, is uh, characteristic of some engagement or some dependence upon an artificial intelligent platform. Equally, there are parts of the economy that now, are, as we stand here today, um, are almost entirely untouched by artificially intelligent systems. So, you know, last time I looked, when I drove back up to Yorkshire to go and see my family, I, I had to drive 
that wasn't a um, automated car that could drive up in my driveway and take me there. But that's going to change. It's going to change over the course of the next decade, and it's changing already in other parts of the world outside of the the European context more more rapidly than it is here. But it's coming, and so you know we see there are still huge white spaces in the economy that will be um, uh, increasingly addressed by artificial intelligence systems in the coming decade or decades. And we think you know we've got we stand in the foothills of of what's likely coming coming in our direction. I mean, to me, AI has always is still is some sort of science fiction gone real. You've mentioned self-driving cars. Two questions. How close in time do you think self-driving cars are from us? And what is the most groundbreaking piece of AI that you know about? The, the, well, I mean, the, the second one, there, could, there are many examples, but I think the, one of the most important and extraordinary things that we've seen over the course of the last 18 months or so has been what um, Alphabet has achieved with its AlphaFold product in the field of understanding protein folding, um, uh, yes, in the human body, but also more broadly than that. You know, this is one of the great and complex um, uh, problems confronting um, uh, biochemical science uh, over the course of the last 100 years, which has really only been um, addressable until now at the benchtop in a very unscalable fashion. Um, And so what uh, Alphabet have managed to achieve with their AlphaFold platform of um, uh, modeling a very significant proportion of the proteins to be found in the human body is epoch changing for um for biomedical research teams for pharmaceutical research teams and ultimately one would hope um radically changing of the life outlook for many of us who will ultimately um suffer from ailments increasingly in old age many of which can be um in some way explained by errors in in the in in protein folding with regard to your former question about automated driving you know i mean the, the the only real response is well it's here today there are plenty of automated cars in the world. They do work. The issue is not so much whether or not they work, but how much they cost. Um, how do we how do we govern them with regulation, and how do we insure them? In other words, who's responsible if a car if an automated vehicle is involved in a um, in a in a in an accident? And of course, just last was it last week or the week before we saw the UK government uh, uh, a, uh, publish a um, a paper on um, their views on how the insurance framework should work. Uh, in the context of automated driving, suggesting that the driver shouldn't actually be responsible for, uh, in the case of an accident, but rather the platform provider, i.e., the car manufacturer, should be should be should be held responsible, and the liability should 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 stay with them. Uh, you know, it's interesting to see how they, that we, you know, we've clearly reached a tipping point now with electric vehicles, even though we're a decade away, nearly from uh, from electric vehicles being you know, sorry, internal combustion engines being banned on the roads in the uh, or sorry, banned for sale in the UK. Um, we're seeing more and more um, fully electric vehicles on the road, and it's no longer um, noteworthy when one drives along the road and passes a Tesla. There are they're not quite ten a penny, but they're they're all over the place. Um, and it's not very long ago since um, I could find very few people in the in the um, in the investment community who could tell me that Tesla could even make a car, let alone could they make a car at scale, let alone could they make four different cars at scale, let alone still further could they make money while doing it. Um, so it's extraordinary how um, you know we we might overestimate what can be achieved in the course of the next six months, but we do have a tendency to underestimate what can be achieved over the course of the next decade. So my answer to your question on automated vehicles is that I suspect we will see them sooner than people expect, and I'd be quite surprised if we don't see them in some kind of scale over the course of the next decade. A few big names have been mentioned. There's one missing that I know is not completely related to AI, but they've got a lot to do with it. And this is the former Facebook meta platforms. And 
just before we go, I wanted to touch upon the metaverse. So I think we need to separate the metaverse on the one hand from Facebook's protestations about the importance for the metaverse for it on the other. You know, we have deep misgivings about Facebook and their business model. Um, we always have. We've never owned it. Um, notwithstanding the fact that it absolutely, you know, is engaged with the artificial intelligent world. You know, the reason we don't own it is nothing really to do with its AI and all to do with its ethical principles and its governance and um, and um, and a concern, long-standing concern we've had in respect of the outlook for growth in its core business. And you know, we, um, I wish it was different, to be honest, because I think Facebook is an important social business, and um, I I wish it behaved in a more um, appropriate manner, to be frank. Moving on from Facebook specifically, I think the metaverse is really important, really important, and I think it's going to become part of um, life um, in, in a number of different ways over the course of the next decade. And I think this can happen really very quickly because all of the building blocks are broadly speaking there. So whilst you know the, the, the more science fiction end of the, um, of the metaverse may be something which culturally takes slightly longer perhaps to become mainstream, and by that I'm thinking about you know the, all of us having second lives, third lives, fourth lives in the metaverse, and you know reinventing ourselves as as, as different avatars and, and 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 engaging differently than we do in, in in the real world. I think that the the metaverse has some very very useful um, applications that can be delivered with today's technology in lots of different other 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 contexts. So for example. Um, the building of digital twins in the industrial space and the architectural space is, is, is of incredible util, utility um, in designing factories, designing machine tools, designing uh, bridges, testing for failure rates, and, and both in terms of um, you know, structural failures in, 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 in architectural projects or alternatively um, operational failures in, um, in manufacturing lines, for example. Um, <clears throat> and I think we, you know, we're, we're, we're in, a, um, in an interesting uh, space where actually you know potentially the tables slightly get turned where at the moment we think of the of the the digital the digital world being a facsimile of the real world um because the digital world you know is a, is, is is a copy of the of, the, of, of something which comes first in the digital world i think what's actually going to ch going to happen over the course of the next decade is that it's lightly turned on its head and you end up in a situation whereby actually <clears throat> the real world becomes a facsimile of the digital world <clears throat> where digital twins and multiple digital twins are um, are used to design, let's say, a building or a, or a manufacturing um, workflow, um, for argument's sake, um, and then only one real-world version of these multiple um, uh, instances actually finds itself being built in the um, in, in in the real world. So, it's a huge market, um, and we think it is real. But I think it's. It's not necessary. It's, it's maybe a little bit more boring than people think it is. You know, it's it's it's, and that's often the way, right? You know, you you, it's only when these things become boring that real money can be made and real changes can be experienced at the coalface. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if it's boring. That what it is is still mind blowing to me. But um, with that, I'm we're going to leave it here. We're going to leave people thinking about all of these that Chris has just said. Uh, Chris Ford, thank you very much uh, for joining us today and. Uh, we hope uh, you still play every now and then, still. Uh, and you think about AI whilst you're playing this Vivaldi, uh, uh, Bach Sonata. I, I'm just a bit ignorant here, but thank you so much. Thanks a lot.